I was performing at a really higher level, got hit with, you know, the health issues and life distractions and wanted to get back to that point. And it was really only when I decided to do one thing at a time, to do it well, and then move on to the next thing that, you know, I was really able to achieve that level of success again. And I'm so much happier and it's so much more sustainable too. Like I, I really feel like it's a startup all over again in a good way, not in like the bad way of being overwhelmed by everything but in like the creative energy and passion I have for it. Well, hey there, if we have not yet met, my name is Alex Judd. I'm the founder of Path for Growth, and this is the Path for Growth podcast. Now, as a business, we exist to help impact-driven leaders step into who they were created to be so that others benefit and God is glorified. And this podcast is just another iteration of how that mission comes to life. Today, I get to share with you a conversation that I had with Thatcher Wine. Now, Thatcher is the author of the book, The 12 Monotasks, Do One Thing at a Time to Do Everything Better. And this relates directly to something we've talked about a lot on this podcast, the phrase pay attention. Think about that phrase for a second and how odd that is. We say pay attention, meaning that attention to attend to something, it's going to cost you something. And so often our attention goes to the place that the world around us tells it to go. And what's better is for leaders to decide intentionally where they are going to place their attention. And that's what this book and this conversation is all about. Now, over the course of the book, which is a really, really good one to read and to reference. He walks through 12 monotasks, reading, walking, listening, sleeping, eating, getting there, learning, teaching, playing, seeing, creating, and thinking. But for the purposes of this conversation, I really wanted to dive into a couple of them that I feel like have the opportunity to provide the highest return for leaders and overflow into the quality of life of their teams. But before we got into all of that, I wanted to ask Thatcher, really, what was his personal connection to this topic of monotasking? So my personal story goes back just about five years ago. I'd started a business about 20 years ago called Juniper Books. But then, and things were, you know, the classic entrepreneurial creative story, like things were going well, not always like up and up, but, you know, over the long term, successful, creative, productive, you know, I've had fun being an entrepreneur. About five years ago, I got diagnosed with cancer. I had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. I had to go through a pretty hardcore chemotherapy regimen, about 100 hours a week times six over about a five-month period. And about a year after recovered from that, and thankfully the treatment worked, right? So I'm here, healthy, grateful for you know modern medicine and all the support that I received, but was super distracted through that process, trying to run my business, trying to operate at a high level, trying to be a good parent. I have two, two kids that were smaller at that time. And about a year after going through cancer and chemo, went through a divorce. And then basically same kind of process of like a lot of my time, energy, resources going towards towards that and healing and the emotional, psychological, you know, trauma of that. It's not easy for anyone. And, you know, I started thinking a lot after that about how do I stay focused in this like super distracting world we live in? And then you throw in these like extra next level distractions. And for other people who are listening, like it could be something else. I mean, it could just, could be a job loss, could be, you know, a different personal trauma um, or something that just takes your full attention while you're going through, you know, all the distractions of just living in the 21st century. Our phones have a lot to do with that. (laughs) No kidding. (laughs) Um, They're constantly asking for our attention and making us think that we can multitask. And I kind of looked around and I was like, I couldn't find like a productivity method that worked for me out there, right? I was like searching for something. I was trying to figure out like, how do I go back to the way it was before? How do I put things back together? How do I focus? How do I continue to be as creative as I was before when I'm super exhausted? I was really tired from all the stuff I'd gone through and, and the impact it had on my body. So I'm a bookseller. My business, Juniper Books, is all about books and creating libraries for people and book collections and selling books in ways that people have never seen before like really cool additions to Harry Potter and other books that people just love and have changed their lives. So for me, things kind of always start with books and reading and the benefits of that. And I thought, you know, when I was like super distracted and didn't have time to do any, like to read, (laughs) I basically forced myself to sit down and read for 20 minutes a day at the beginning. And I noticed that like, it just kind of like 
reattached my attention span together so that I could pay attention to other things in life. If I gave my attention to the printed page for a little while every day, I felt calmer. It felt like I could pay attention in a meeting and in a conversation. And so I took this idea of like, well, maybe reading is the opposite of using our phones. Our phones are like these multitasking temptation machines. And reading is this monotasking, you know, you must only do one thing at a time. Give your full attention to the printed page and you get back this strength and attention span. And so I took this idea of like, well, if reading is, is what I would call a monotask, what else can we monotask in life? Can we listen with our full attention in a conversation, unlike we kind of half pay attention in most conversations these days? Can we go for a walk or do other exercise and fully pay attention to it? And have a better walk, have a better exercise, have a better, you know, whatever we're doing. And, and then also get back like the strength and ability to do everything else in life. Like come back to our desk after that walk or really feel good about the conversation we had with our kids or family or on a date. And then um, be able to do everything better. And so I kind of took that whole journey forward into the 12 monotasks. We'll talk about those that are in my book. And really found that it's helped strengthen my ability to pay attention and do all the things that I wanted to do. More, I was more productive, more creative, more successful as a result. Man, I, I so appreciate you for sharing that. And one of the first things that kind, kind of comes to mind whenever I hear that story is just like you're being pulled in a billion different directions. Like it, it almost sounds like any one of those things could be the type of thing that just flat out takes you out almost. And, and then you put them all in the same thing. And it's like pretty insane how many uh, plates you were spinning all at once. It feels like the natural impulse in that scenario is to literally think and say, I don't have time to read. Who has time to read? <laughs> like, who can take 20 minutes to read? Like, I, I'm just trying to keep the world moving right now or my world moving right now. And, and so what had to click inside of you to literally slow down and stop and do the thing that you most needed but probably felt least natural? Yeah, no, and that's a great point. Um I can't remember who said the quote, but it was somebody said, you know, everybody should meditate for 15 minutes a day, unless you're too busy, in which case you should meditate for half an hour. <laughs> That's right. Something like that. You know, it's basically like the thing that you don't have time for and you couldn't possibly make time for, you should do like twice or three times as much as everybody else who, who just, you know, has all the time in the world because you really need it. And I needed it. So when it came to reading, yeah, I mean, a lot of it's like, I talk to people a lot about reading. And one thing that I hear from some people who have thought about it is like, I don't like reading because I can't multitask while I'm reading. I can't do anything else. While I'm, like, why would I do that? I only do things, I'm not saying I, but <laughs> this is what I hear from other people. You know, I don't want anybody to quote me. You know, people tend to do things that they can multitask. Like some people might be listening to this podcast while doing the laundry. That's totally fine. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it, but reading is hard. And I think that's a feature not a flaw. And I think it gives us something that's kind of missing in a lot of other areas of life. And so you have to basically give yourself permission, I, I did, to do one thing at a time. And it's something that's hard to do in this day and age. And it's even hard for me. Like I've been practicing this for a long time, but if I sit down in my reading chair, and that's one tip is to have a reading chair, a place that like is really comfortable, that's like your place to go that signals to you, like, I'm going to focus. I'm going to do one thing in this place. So for me, it's this leather reading chair that I bought 30 years ago. And if I bring my phone with me, and if I start scrolling through Instagram or something, like 20, 30 minutes, 40 minutes will go by, and like I haven't picked up a book. If I leave my phone in the other room, go sit down, pick up a book, it works much better. Like resisting the temptations, setting yourself up for success, I think is really key. I mean, it's so interesting nowadays because it feels as though the idea that multitasking is a failed system is almost widely accepted, especially in kind of the business and leadership space. Everyone's kind of like, okay, I understand it doesn't work and I'm awful at it and so is everyone else, right? And, and so I, I guess one of the things that I kept coming back to as I was going through your book and going through kind of this idea of monotasking is why do we keep trying multitasking? Like, why are we so obsessed with pursuing it as an ideal if we know it doesn't work? Like, do you have any insight into that? <laughs> That's a great question. You know, I, yes, I, I've thought about it a lot. I've researched it. 
I think I think a few things are going on. One is our human brains are just set up to be aware, taking a lot of information, like to be able to process more than one thing at a time. They're set up that way because thousands of years ago or maybe a few hundred years ago or even now, like you have to be alert to dangers in the universe, right? Wild animal, you know, sounds in the night while you're cooking dinner for your kids or something by the campfire. So that feature of our human brains and our ability to notice more than one thing at a time is to a certain extent preyed upon by technology companies and and advertising companies. So your ability to take in more than one thing at a time now is very valuable. There's a phrase, the attention economy or the distraction economy, depending on how you talk about it. You know, in the theory is basically that your attention is one of the most valuable resources in the world today. If you can, if I can get your attention to look at an ad, a notification, an app, an email, you name it, like that's worth a few, you know, fractions of a penny or a few dollars or whatever to a company on the other side of that screen. So I think, you know, we have to just be aware of how our brains work, that we are susceptible to distractions and multitasking. Things are always going to seem, you know, more interesting to a certain extent if we, you know, can just give them a little bit of attention. Like media multitasking is a thing right now. Sitting on the couch, looking at your phone, doing Snapchat while watching Netflix. <laughs> you know, like that's, it's all, it's not like bad stuff necessarily. I mean, it's bad if you're, need to get a report done for a customer right now and you're like watching YouTube videos about how to, you know, lay tile or something. But some of it's like good. And so we don't realize why it's bad for us, right? It's just like, oh, this is fun. It's like pleasurable. I think I can do it. My device told me I could do it. So I'm going to give it a try. And we don't realize like how much we're just fragmenting our attention over and over and over again. And it's, it's just harder when we need to put it back together and do one thing for a minute or six minutes or an hour, how hard it is to do after we've watched TikTok all day. And it's not, I don't think it's like a mystery. (laughs) Like you got to train for it. You wouldn't go run a marathon tomorrow without having run a single mile. Like how are you going to pay attention in an important meeting this afternoon if you haven't really been training for that? Yeah. And just kind of on that line of thinking, it's like you are training for something like either the social media companies, Netflix, like all of these distractions are training you to live a certain way, or you are training yourself to live a certain way. But it's almost like you're training for something. and It would be wise to be aware of that. As it relates to this concept of attention, is there a specific principle or set of principles that you just like, man, if you could put this on a billboard and just make everyone aware of it with regard to their attention, you would just want them to know these things and just be aware of these things as they kind of move forward? Yeah. I mean, this is too long for a billboard. I mean, I guess the billboard version (laughs) would be, you know, put your phone down, like, and pay attention. It's not put, it's not get rid of your phone. Like, it's just like, take some time away from your phone, whether it's going for a walk, being in a conversation, reading a book, like just practice digital wellness, I would call it. And, and achieve some balance. But, you know, some of the things that I've seen that are interesting to me, you know, one is that basically everybody thinks they can multitask, but only 2% of people actually can pay attention to more than one thing at a time, cognitively. Like, I think almost everybody can fold the laundry and listen to a podcast. That's great. (laughs) Great for podcasts. But like to actually like give your attention to two things that require some thinking, you know, working on that presentation while listening on a Zoom call. Like that, only 2% of people maybe can do that. And so like we're in the other 98% and that's okay. Like, I think we should be okay with that. We shouldn't try to learn how to multitask. And there's a lot, there's like the multitasking industrial complex trying to teach you to multitask. It's not going to work. Another stat that's interesting is that, you know, to go from one cognitive heavy task to another requires um, an average of 23 minutes to kind of reset, like go from one thing to another. You need like 23 minutes to get from one frame of mind, understand the context of the next thing, settle your brain, press reset, you know. So like things that we, if we're constantly, like what, we're, what we think we're doing when we're multitasking is doing two things at once or five things. But what we're actually doing is going from one task to another called task switching. 
So if you bring your awareness to this idea that like, okay, I'm not actually simultaneously going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. If, if my brain needs 23 minutes to go from one task to another, and I'm trying to do that instantaneously, I'm just putting an incredible amount of stress on my brain. I'm not doing my best work, probably just burning myself out and not really training my ability to actually like focus and do good work in the thing I just completed or the next thing I'm moving on to. So I think just having that awareness. And then I like to say, you know, if you're going to lose that 23 minutes anyway, like transitioning from one task to another, go for a walk, take a nap, go get a snack, like treat yourself well, you know, like take care of yourself and your mind and then you'll do your best work. Gosh, I love that. And, and I love that you're coming from the posture of a practitioner too. Like you've owned your business for, I think you said upwards of 20 years now. Mm -hmm. Is there something within this topic that you think is uniquely relevant or applicable to the entrepreneur or that an entrepreneur really needs to hear? And then from there, I'd love for us to get into some of the specific monotasks, but just kind of conceptually thinking about this topic of attention and monotasking, anything specific stand Mm -hmm. out for the entrepreneur? Absolutely. I mean, to be an entrepreneur is basically to be forced to multitask all the time. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, like, like, you signed up for the opposite of what we're talking about right now. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I learned it, you know, from experience, like you said, from for 21 years. And, and fortunately, like after 21 years, like I do have some help. I have 22 team members and I don't do all the things that I used to do. But like, you know, everybody who's starting a business knows like, you know, mar- there's marketing and sales and accounting and, you know, everything, customer service, like janitorial stuff that you're doing and you have to do, and it's never done. Like that's the reality. You just have to accept that. Doing it all at the same time is not going to get it done. It's basically going to burn you out. You're going to be facing more exhaustion. So coming up like monotasking your ability to make a plan to, you know, when do you need to hire some people to get help doing those things? When, what is your zone of genius? Like how, what's your best skill, like whether you're real value added to the business and the company and being able to like really focus when you do that work. So if it's talking to customers, like be 100% focused. Don't be on your phone scrolling through, you know, social media while you're trying to make the big sale. It's kind of obvious, but still happens. So I think, you know, as an entrepreneur, like I said in my, my earlier, um, you know, introduction about how it came to the idea of monotasking, like I, I learned this the hard way. I was performing at a really high level, Got hit with, you know, the health issues and life distractions and wanted to get back to that point. And it was really only when I decided to do one thing at a time to do it well and then move on to the next thing that, you know, I was really able to achieve that level of success again. And I'm so much happier and it's so much more sustainable, too. Like, I I really feel like it's a startup all over again in a good way, not in like the bad way of being overwhelmed by everything, but in like the creative energy and passion I have for it. Is it fair to say that a lot of this is related to just bringing a higher degree of intention to your attention, like of purposefulness and deliberateness to where you're placing your intention? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, that's a great observation. So I think a lot of it really is about observing yourself and where your attention is going and reclaiming control over it. So don't let it be, you know, controlled by others, tech companies, advertisers, you know, the emergency of the moment, like really try to, you know, bring your awareness to like, where is it right now? Is it scattered? Okay, maybe I like should go sit in a chair and read. Maybe I should go for a walk without my phone. And the the other 12 monotasks include things like sleeping, like give your full attention to the rest and the sleep that you need. Creating, thinking is another one, listening, and, and all of these things can be practiced with 100% attention. They might be hard, super hard at the beginning because you're not used to it. Like nothing in the year 2022 is set up to encourage you to do one thing at a time with your full attention. So you have to like bring your intention, your awareness to your attention, as you said, and do that one thing. And then notice your ability, what I call your monotasking muscles, get stronger and stronger as you practice that. And then you'll be able to apply it to things that aren't even in the book that you just need to do in your life, whatever it is, you know, your people listening, like their businesses are, you know, across the board and their needs at a particular time to, to focus on a certain process or task, like are going to be different. But if you strengthen those monotasking muscles, then you can be like, oh, 
I'm going to put it 100% my attention, my monotasking focus on what I need to do right now for the next 20 minutes. Mm. That's pretty cool that it's a transferable muscle in that way. It's like you you can uh, maybe learn this with regard to reading and you're going to see the benefits and the effects and the gifts of sustained attention in other arenas of your life. That's kind of what you're saying, yeah? A hundred percent, yeah. So like nothing is wasted energy or time if you're giving it your full focus. That's basically the message of the book. So it's like, read read a book. Like I could pick up a, I don't know, a Kurt Vonnegut book behind me and read that for 20 minutes. That's going to be helpful in writing a sales contract mm. for a customer. That's going to be helpful in like researching, you know, a design for a cover of a book that I want to create, not just for Kurt Vonnegut, but just like my ability to pay attention, not the specific information in that book. It's totally transferable. Gosh, man. Uh, I don't know why, but you saying in the context of this conversation, you saying the phrase wasted time, like gave me chills. Cause it's like, if we are ever saying we're wasting time, like that's on me, that is my responsibility. And I totally screwed up. Cause it's like, man, we've been given such a gift that is time. And if we apply our attention in the right way, then we should never be able to say that it's wasted. <laughs> I've never thought about it that way. That's really cool. Okay. I'd love to jump into a couple of the specific monotasses kind of case studies and kind of dig into what you've learned. The, the first thing that I'd like to do is just ask you, is there one of the 12 that you're most passionate about currently? Because that's where I'd love to start. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll rattle off a few of them and then settle on one. Okay, sounds good. <laughs> I like I mean, it. So you, even though the books in my career, you know, really started with books, like it is the one that's maybe still the hardest. Like it's, it's still... I keep bringing myself back to there as the starting point for everything else. And the nice thing about books is that there's like unlimited things to read and, you know, for entertainment, information, and just this ability, like we're talking about, to pay attention. The other one that like I've actually been, if we had talked a month ago, I would have said like, oh, it's not going that well with sleep. Like I lost my focus on it. Like I'm my sleep hygiene or whatever you want to call it in terms of like getting really good quality sleep. It's not going that well. I got to work on that again. But I'm happy to say like, I put a big focus on it and I use this whoop strap. Um, oh, dude, nice. You know, I know people have biometric monitors of all sorts. We need to get you that that sponsorship deal, man. Whoop should be sponsoring Thatcher Wine right now. <laughs> Okay, well, I'd, I'd love to park there just because it's the journey that you've been on in the past month. So when you have this realization maybe a month ago that you say, oh, this isn't going this well, and then you say you focus on it, like that's such an odd thing, right? Like, oh, I decided to focus on sleep for a month and it got better. What does that mean to focus on it? And, and what did those steps look like to be in a better spot now? So with, with sleep and with a lot of them, I, I really separate it into two monotasking tasks to a certain extent. Like the first part is like preparing to get good sleep and then there's sleeping, actually getting good sleep. So the nice thing is that while we're awake, we can actually think about sleep and prepare, setting ourselves up for success. So for me, that means like making sure my bedroom is the right temperature, that it's dark, that I've got my pillows set up the right way. I sleep in like this pillow fort with <laughs> heavy pillows all around me because I've get better sleep. It's like a weighted blanket that people use. But for me, I don't like the blanket on top of me. I just like the pillows on the side of me. So it's like coming up with those little hacks like that, like might seem silly or trivial, or you might not ever even mention it if you just do it. But it's like, oh, maybe, maybe you have been monotasking all along. And you didn't know it. Like you have been putting the thought into how you can do something better. So the result is, and then I, you know, where the monitor and my my REM sleep and my deep sleep have been going up and my heart rate variability has been going up so I can measure it that's a nice thing about wearing this I'm not like obsessed with the numbers but I wake up I take a guess at like how much sleep did I get and how much REM sleep and deep sleep and like it's usually pretty accurate and when I feel exhausted and tired that's you know usually the sleep equation has something to do with it so, you know, really giving yourself, like some of the things we've talked about, like giving yourself permission to do one thing at a time. The other thing, I almost didn't mention it because it's, it's been a few years since I've done it, but I used to go to bed like with my laptop and I'd be like, I'm just going to send a few emails before I go to sleep. And then as an entrepreneur, you know, everyone's probably familiar with just like falling asleep at the point of exhaustion. <laughs> You're like, if I don't do this tonight, I'm going to have to do it tomorrow. So I'm going to try to do it tonight. And then you get sleepy and your eyelids get heavy. And like, you probably don't finish the last thing that you started. It doesn't lead to great sleep. It leads to staying up later. 
not getting the rest you need. You're not as productive and focused the next day as you need to be. And you probably were never going to do your best job on that email or proposal anyway. So, you know, for me, I'd rather go to bed early and get up early and start my day like really productive and clear thinking. So it's things like that. And that, that like the classic definition of multitasking for some people is like, oh, that person walking down the street, looking at their phone and not noticing traffic or something. But multitasking like shows up in a lot of other ways. And that's, that's one of them, like trying to go to sleep while doing your work, watching TV while trying to go to sleep, you know, eating right before you go to bed, like focus on sleeping, figure out what it takes to get your best night's sleep and then do it. Then observe it the next day, make the adjustments you need, try again. Mm. Man, it's amazing how easy this one can be to neglect. Like, I think one of the statements that you made in the book that was a recognition that I think just about everyone would agree with, but oftentimes don't actually pay enough attention to is just the idea like this is the one thing sleep that if you are to focus on it, it almost instantly makes everything else better. And yet for some reason, it's one thing that we, it's probably the first thing that we drop, right? Like if we don't have enough time to do all the things, the first thing that oftentimes leaders, entrepreneurs are willing to cut is, oh, I'll just sleep less. So stay up later or I'll get up earlier, one of the two. You know, I was just thinking about as you were talking about, you know, us multitasking as we're falling asleep. It was, gosh, probably a year ago now, a guy that, I mean, he's, he's one of my favorite customers that we get to work with. And one of the things that we focus on whenever we work with people within our membership is, if you want to put your business in order, start by putting yourself in order. And so we just start by creating some habits, some routines, some rhythms to make sure that they're practicing healthy growth as an individual so that that can cascade into their business. And he was talking a little bit about his headspace whenever he wakes up and his morning routine and all of that is something that he wanted to focus on. And a lot of times whenever people say, oh, I really need to focus on my morning routine, one of our first questions is, okay, let's first talk about your nighttime routine as well. And so we got into that conversation and he was kind of talking about how, man, whenever I wake up, I just feel like I'm on edge. And I just feel like I don't have any sense of structure or focus or centeredness to my day. And so we talked about his nighttime routine. He's like, well, he's like, I don't really love that I do this. And he's like, it's just the stupidest thing. But for whatever reason, it relaxes me. He's like, I sit in my bed and I just read TMZ for like 30 minutes and I fall asleep reading. TMZ. It's like, oh my God. And he literally, as he was saying it, he was like, oh yeah, that probably has something to do with it. It's like, yeah. So I, I mean, are there any other practical tips that you would say, man, if, if I was to create the ultimate evening routine for you, and I'd love for you to speak to as someone that has kids, right? Like you've got kids, evening routine can be kind of challenging. And, and oftentimes I've seen for people with kids, it's more challenging than morning routine. So what are like some specific things you would do in the last maybe hour of the night to set yourself up for a win going into sleep? Yeah. Well, I mean, starting at like three hours before I go to bed, I stop drinking fluids and try to have dinner about three hours before I go to bed too. As far as the kids go, they're a little bit older now. So 13 and 16. So thankfully they get themselves to sleep. And as a parent, I'm like, gosh, what did I even do when they were toddlers? But I, I remember it, you know, reading to them and like falling asleep while telling them a story or, or reading a book. And then sometimes like, I think as a parent entrepreneur in those early years, I would always think, oh, like as soon as I woke up, you know, like let's say I got them to bed at 7.30 and then I'd wake up at 8.30 and be like, okay, I got to go to my own bed. But then I'd be like, oh, I'm actually pretty awake. I'm going to do some work right now. I think recognizing that as a parent, you're going to be exhausted. You should get some sleep. <laughs> so instead of like going back to work, probably going to sleep and trying to get more, you know, good quality sleep. I think there's there's some research that has been done on this. I call it a sleep window. Like everybody has their natural circadian rhythm. Some people are maybe more night owls. Some people are more morning people. For me, like if I go to bed at 9.30 p.m., I get my best sleep and I wake up at 5.30 a.m., which I know is early for some people. If I miss that and I find myself up at like 10.30 or 11, like I'll still go out, you know, some nights of the week and just in recognition of this, but if I stay up too late, like it's really hard to go to sleep. Then I might not fall asleep till 1230 or one. My body still wakes up at 530 in the morning. So it's just being aware of like how your own body works and how much sleep you're going to get. And do you have to get up and drive to work? Like you're not going to get more sleep 
if you have to get up at the same time by staying up later. It's just like a simple math equation. So, so I think being awareness of that, and that's, that's part of the monotasking, the preparation to get a good night's sleep. Other things you can do, like a lot of people these days, if they wake up in the middle of the night, they reach for their phone. That's the first thing they do. If you reach for it just to check what time it is and go back to sleep, awesome. If you reach for it and you're like, oh, I'm just going to look through TMZ <laughs> or I'm going to check out what's happening on Facebook. I didn't have time to do that today. You know, the odds are that you're going to see something that wakes you up even more. Holding your phone and looking at the blue light and all that is probably going to wake you up even more. And it's not like you're just going to fall back asleep. As soon as you're done with your phone, you're probably going to be up for a while and your sleep cycle is disturbed. So I like to say, you know, if you're going to try to go back to sleep like as quickly as possible, if you get up to go to the bathroom or whatever, and if you do find yourself awake, do something healthy like reading a book or do something that strengthens your attention span like that. And then, yeah, so those are a few of the tips. Yeah, that's helpful. That's helpful for me. One of the things that applies to the example that you gave of getting up and, and going on Facebook or TMZ or whatever like that, but I think it probably also applies to all of the other monotasks as well that I experience as a challenge. And I've heard this kind of reciprocated in the people that we get to work with as well is if my mind goes to, oh, I wonder how that post is performing on LinkedIn, or I wonder if our company has posted on social media today or something like that. Like if my mind even asks that question, it's like there's this open loop in my mind that it's almost like, okay, well now I'm screwed about falling back to sleep, right? Because it's just like, I'm going to sit up and think about that until I go check that. And I don't like that, right? Like, and, and, so is there anything that you've learned about closing that loop that doesn't involve just satisfying? Because satisfying it just feels like LinkedIn is winning, right? It's like I am feeding into that behemoth's like system to their algorithm. And so what is like what are the tactics you have for closing that loop in some ways in a way that's healthy? Yeah. So it's a really great question, a great example. So What's happening in that case is like you're in this hap like this happens all the time, right? There's always something that pops into our head. And I think we think, okay, because it popped into our head, it's important. Or if I close the loop on it, I go get the answer to it, or I send that email, or I, you know, look up LinkedIn or Instagram or something, like I'm going to be satisfied and therefore I will be able to fall asleep or I'll be able to feel better about myself. The reality is you're like you're creating a habit which is basically going to be repeated and perpetuated because your brain is going to be looking for instant gratification the next time something pops into your head and you're going to feel like, oh, if I just go do that, then I can move on. We have to accept the fact that there are always going to be an unlimited number of things we need to do, number one, and we're not going to have enough time for all of them. Just the reality of life, especially as a busy, successful entrepreneur. And number two, we have to accept, accept the reality that other companies, whether it's an app or Facebook or something are always advertiser. Like they're always going to present things to us as if they're good for us when they're really primarily good for them. So it's like, Oh, so-and-so wants to send you this notification or hasn't posted in a while or whatever. Um, and we're going to think, Oh, like it's fate that that, you know, was shown to me at this particular time when I happened to be awake at three in the morning, <laughs> I must be destined to look at it. It's all staged, right? It's not good for us. We're not going to be satisfied. And it's really just benefiting that company. I think that our best work and our closest relationships like can wait. We're in this like instant gratification world that we live in. We've set up this dynamic with our friends and our family and everybody that's like we're going to text them right back. And I think like true friendship, true connection, true like quality work like come takes time, takes patience. And if your friends like want to be really good friends with you, they should value that too. And because they're on the other side of it too, like you, they're picking their phones up at three in the morning. Like, do you really want them to write you back at that hour? Like, I don't really want my friends to do that. I'd rather have them write to me when they get a good night's sleep <laughs> and they can like write a thoughtful message. So just being aware of that dynamic, I think is really important. And then deciding that it's a good thing to develop the attention span and the self-restraint and the patience to do things at a more sustainable pace. I think is is all good for us. Man, it's crazy to me how on this one specifically, 
most of the things that you mentioned are actually relatively easy, but can make a radical impact, like leaving the phone plugged in in the living room instead of the bedroom, turning the temperature down because we sleep better at a lower temperature, buying some blackout curtains, buying an alarm clock instead of waking up and looking at your phone to turn off the phone. It's like those are all relatively easy things to do, like could probably all be accomplished over the course of a day to set yourself up for a win. But I think it applies kind of to that. uh, It's a Jordan Peterson principle to treat yourself as someone you're responsible for helping. Like a lot of times I think leaders are so focused on like, okay, well, we got to be helping everyone else that when it comes to like going to pick up some blackout curtains and taking an hour and a half to hang them up, it's like we, we don't have time for that. When in reality, like that's the thing that would probably give us back the most time. So I hope that people take that as an action item from this. I'll tell you, Thatcher, I'm I'm someone that I don't track my sleep at all. I, I'm pretty consistent and deliberate about going to sleep at a particular time and then waking up at a relatively consistent time, depending on the season that I'm in. If someone is in my position and they don't track their sleep, do you have like a beginner's guide on like, this is what you're looking for? This is the number of REM hours? Like, what have you learned from that arena? I mean, it is different for everybody. And I'm not, you know, a, a sleep psychologist or whatever they call it. But, you know, I'll tell you just from my own experience, I was averaging like five hours of sleep per the app and maybe 40 minutes of REM sleep and deep sleep a night out of that five hours. And I've over the past few weeks, like I mentioned, have improved that and, you know, averaging more like seven hours now and closer to like an hour and a half of deep sleep and REM sleep. And, and that's like a big improvement for me. What do you feel, what do you experience as the benefits of that? Like when you uh, like are more on pace with what you want to be and with what you think is right, like how does it affect your countenance? How does that affect your work? How do you think other people would experience you on the back end of that? Can you speak to some of the benefits? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, definitely wake up feeling rested and, you know, generally with more energy, more focus and clarity, I'd say is the big thing like throughout the day. You know, that feeling where when you wake up and you just like your day just never really comes together, you know, and you're like, you're irritable, you're impatient, like nothing really provides you with joy. Like, I think those are the things that happen when I don't get enough sleep. And I I will say, like, I'm a huge fan of the nap. I take a power nap almost every single day, 15 or 20 minutes around, around this time right now. But (laughs) Oh, no, I'm so sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I took it earlier today. Okay, so. good deal. <laughs> um, but it's funny. It does happen at like one, we're talking it for people that don't know, we're talking in the middle of the day. It's about 145 where I am. And yeah, my body just around 130 is like gets a little brain foggy. And then like, I'm like, I could just tell if I'm like writing an email, I'm like this, I would do a better job with this if I took a nap, take a nap, come back, finish it later. And it's like a whole new day for me just from that 15 minutes. So yeah, so those are you know some of the benefits that I, I notice in myself and I think other people can can see. And I, I don't think you have to track your metrics, right? Some people can be, become like a little bit obsessive about it. There's a cost to it, you know, and I think I think just checking in with yourself and maybe keeping a journal, like writing a few notes about did I get a good night's sleep? What time did I go to bed? What time did I wake up? Which is not the absolute determinant, obviously, of how much sleep you got, but it's directional. The more time you spend in bed, hopefully, the more time, more sleep you get. And then make some observations about how your day went and then look back through those notes every now and then and and see if there's some clues that you can gather to, you know, what you should be doing more of and what changes you should make. You talking about how people can become obsessive and how it's like, if you're not careful, the tracking will be the thing that keeps you from experiencing the freedom that the whole thing was created for. I, I, uh had a counselor once that I I kind of got on this whole trend of like really tracking what I was doing with my time and with my days and things like that. And I would track it all on this massive whiteboard. And, and then like, I would be working with stuff with this counselor and, and the, the primary emotion that I would experience with regard to this tracking would be like shame and like, I'm not doing enough. And, and he kind of just pointed out, he's like, maybe one of the reasons why that's the case is because you literally call it a scoreboard and you're applying a score to every single day it's like maybe we should just use like tracker is the right word or something like that but it's like yeah i think that was one thing that i had to kept coming or keep coming back to and listen to your content on this thatcher was like okay keep the end goal in mind the end goal is freedom and focus and and presence and if we're ever becoming so stressed out about the monotask that it's taking away from the freedom that we're actually chasing then it's probably doing it wrong you know 
Yeah, that's a great reminder. And I think, you know, I might say it like, you know, I'm more of a believer in like self-observation as opposed to like measurement. Yeah, score. Um, or, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it. I like the whole, it's another one of these like big trends in, in modern life is to measure everything. And if it can't be measured, it can't be improved and big data can help everything. You know, I think some things it helps, but other things it's just like, just pay attention, pay attention to yourself. Observe how you feel, observe what you're doing, the decisions you're making, where your time and your energy and your attention are going, and then make the adjustments based upon your own intuition. I, I fully believe that we're all capable of you know, living a more balanced and sustainable life without big data. If you can put it to work to help a little bit, great, but don't become obsessed about it. Yeah, I mean, there, there's kind of two approaches to getting there, but it's like in, in many ways, it feels like your book is stripping away all the things that are taking us away from the person we were actually created to be. Like, it's like, this is not relearning things that we've never done as human beings. It's, it's actually learning things that we were created for as human beings that we've done for thousands of years. Okay, with that, is there one monotask that you think maybe has the potential to provide the highest return for a leader and by extension their team if the leader was to focus on it? Like, is there one that stands out specifically for that audience? Yeah, I would definitely say listening is the key one. And this has been echoed by people who have read the book, you know, since the very early drafts. It's, it's when they read that chapter about monotasking, listening, and giving it your full attention and not doing what we tend to do, you know, which in modern life, is half pay attention, you know, keep your phone on the table while you're, you know, out to dinner with your partner or whatever. Listen with your full attention. Listen to the point where it feels uncomfortable because we don't do it enough. Listen as if you're, you're, recording a podcast like we are, and there's nothing else going on in the world. Listen as if your life depended on it in that one conversation. Like, it's amazing how much your life does actually depend on it. Like, really hearing what other people are saying, whether it's your child or a customer, like, the world can totally change in mostly in good ways, like, based upon what you hear in a conversation, what's said and what's not said. And, and hearing between the lines with such, you know, acute attention paid to listening. So I think the more we listen with our full attention, the easier it becomes. And we have opportunities, you know, all day, almost every day to, to be a good listener. The, I talk a little bit in the book about different exercises and there's like two-way listening, like a conversation like we're having right now. And, you know, one of the tips is like, don't always be thinking about what you're going to be saying next. Like really try to listen, like, and just go with the flow of the conversation. Because if you're always thinking about what I'm going to say, what my best answer, response, whatever is going to be, I'm not really going to hear you. Then the other kind of listening is one-way listening. So if you're listening to an audiobook or a university lecture, and that can be really hard and challenging in a completely different way. And it's almost like a completely different skill set. And people, you know, have figured out like, oh, I... I listen well by taking notes. I listen well by, you know, watching someone's lips move or something. And other people are like, I'm just going to be on my computer, <laughs> you know, doing something else and I'll figure it out next time. I'll read the book or watch the YouTube video about it. And I don't think that's so healthy, you know, for us. We should just, again, like have some awareness. What are we doing? Are we paying attention or not? Would it be better for us to pay attention with our, our full listening skills and cultivate those. And then, like we talked about earlier, like be able to put them to work anywhere you want. Like you're out, you're having a conversation with your kids or on a date. Those, if you can pay attention there, like you'll be able to put that to work in a meeting with a customer or a team member. And it's going to be super valuable and your life could change. Can you speak to really practically how has that monotask affected your leadership with your team of, I believe, 20 plus people? Yeah. So like in that super distracting period I had a few years ago, I would come to meetings, you know, with my phone and my laptop. And like, I was like, I'm the CEO, like I can multitask. And if somebody needs my attention while we're having this conversation about marketing, like I'm going to respond. And I thought like, A, I was skilled enough to do it. And maybe I, you know, it was my job to just pay attention to lots of different things at once. So I was going to, going to do it. And then around the time that I started practicing monotasking, I, you know, more seriously in researching the book, I was like, I'm not going to do that anymore. 
when I'm in a meeting, you're going to get 100% of my attention. And if I don't think I should be in that meeting and I should be doing something else, I'm going to excuse myself from the meeting. I'm going to say, you know, send me the notes, send me whatever decision needs to be made. But if I get bored, you know, this is, a, I guess I have a privilege as a, as a leader, of the, you know, to be able to say, like, I'm not going to attend this. But, you know, I, I'll say, like, I'll be more effective, like, reading this later and deciding on the three things that I, I should decide on, not sitting here pretending to pay attention. So that's definitely changed. And I think, you know, people people notice that and they respond to that and then they tend to treat your time more valuably. They're like, I'd rather get a half hour of your focused attention than, you know, an hour and a half of partial attention. So let's, let me do the work to get decisions to the point where you can like fully pay attention to them. And, um, and then we'll be much more efficient for all of us. So, so that's definitely changed like our operating culture. You know, we also, we, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership book. That was a book we adapted around the same time. So sometime, like a lot of that's about, you know, making clean agreements, like who's going to do what by when at the end of a meeting and things like that. And, you know, being very conscious, which is another way of explaining like paying attention. So sometimes when in those meetings, think, you know, we aren't getting like the decisions we need, or it seems inefficient or something like we'll bring attention to a framework that we use, like a particular one of those 15 agreements. And that will, that's like another form of monotasking. So it's like, yes, you can monotask should, what should we, our advertising budget be? But if you're not getting to a decision, you can kind of monotask, like, what's the process that we're using to arrive at this decision? And are we all like operating on the same wavelength about paying attention and making agreement and all that. So, so I think that has also been a huge change entrepreneurially and how we run the company. Yeah, that, that kind of applies to another question that I wanted to ask you. I assume the more you learn about this and apply this to your own life, the more benefits you experience. And so therefore you're like, man, I just want all 20 of our team members to also experience these same benefits. And and I want them to be part of the monotasking revolution. And part of that is because y'all released this book, I would assume. But how do you lead a culture that really incentivizes and encourages and promotes this type of lifestyle within your team members? So it's it's it doesn't come naturally, I will say that. So even though I'm like, the monotasking guy. <laughs> and there's lots of copies of my book around the office. You know, I still, I think it's still helpful to talk about it openly, not make any assumptions that like, just because the information's out there in the world that everybody knows how to do it. Or that just because I'm there monotasking, hopefully, not always, like it, I'm no, no monotasking saint. Like I still have to work at it every day. So, you know, we've done some like workshops and presentations within the company and I'll send out a reminder, like if we have a big meeting coming up on a Monday, I'll be like, make sure you get enough sleep over the weekend. And before the meeting starts, you know, maybe go for a 20 minute walk just to reset from the previous task that you've been working on. Really give people permission to to monotask. And I don't think you often hear about, you know, leaders encouraging their team to get more sleep or taking more breaks or something. But like, I know that they're going to do their best work if they if they do these things. So I think creating a culture where there are those reminders and it's acceptable, you know, to really take care of yourself and and people can really advocate for themselves and talk about how they're feeling and maybe something that they're struggling with. Because on that note, like some people have come to me and said, like, I have a really hard time with, you know, practicing this one task or, you know, I don't I didn't like how you said that, you know, you should just pay attention. Like it's it's harder than that. So it's it's real life. And I think that's great. I mean, to learn, this is not a one size fits all approach. I also talk about how, like, if you can't do all 12 monotasks in the book, like, that's great. Like, have that awareness. Like, if you'd rather listen to an audiobook and not read a physical book, like, great, go do all the other ones. And then, like, maybe after practicing the other ones, come back and try reading a physical book, printed book again, and see if, like, your ability to pay attention and sit still has improved. So I think cross-training with the monotask is really helpful. 
And, and I mean, it just seems like it all comes back to like you deciding <laughs> and, and instead of allowing Netflix or social media or whatever to decide where your time is going for you, like you're actually deciding where you're putting your time. And if some of these 12 don't apply to that season, then that's fine. And, and so has that been your experience too? There's some seasons where maybe some of these matter more than others and you're kind of, it's just kind of being aware of the season that you're in and applying intentionality to the ones that you're focused on in that season. Yeah. So depending on what's going on in, in life and your career and maybe, you know, time of year, if we're talking literal seasons, you know, things will come easier and other things will be harder. And I think that's that's fine. I think having that awareness and knowing that you can cross train between, you know, knowing that nothing is a waste of time if you're paying full attention to it. And if you find it easier to pay full attention while you're driving, getting there is one of the tasks, or, or you can apply that to traveling, like just being observant while you're on vacation, instead of like burying yourself in your phone until you get to the hotel. Like that simple task, whether it's, it's that traveling or listening and all the things that we've talked about, teaching is another one, learning is another one. Like if you can learn on Duolingo or learn to play a new song on an instrument you play, like that's great. Like go with what works for you, immerse yourself in it, and then check in periodically on the other tasks that seemed to be hard before, but maybe like a pathway opens up and they become easier, you know, and then go with that and strengthen your attention in that way. And it's all, you know, applicable to anything you want to do in life. The final one that I really wanted to focus on specifically was just the idea of thinking as a monotask. And I think sometimes leaders that we would work with, and I've experienced this myself, would say, like, the problem isn't the thinking, that the problem is getting the thinking to turn off. And that's why I don't sleep at night, right? But what's so interesting about the way you frame this in the book is it's like, oh, no, there are like periods of time where you're only thinking. And that's literally what that time is for and what you're doing. So can you explain what this looks like as a monotask? Yeah. So, I mean, one challenge with monotasking thinking overall is that, you know, thinking goes on inside of our heads. Like most of the other tasks, there's like an outward manifestation of it. People can see you reading a book. People can see you across the table listening to them. Thinking like I could be thinking about something else and while doing a different task, so I could be thinking about lunch while typing an email. And that's my own little secret that I'm multitasking. And, and I think it's good to have some awareness of that, that it's like a little bit harder to practice pure monotasking of thinking than some of the other ones. And that our best thinking, again, we have to kind of monotask our evaluation of ourselves. So it's like, for me, there's a balance between letting go and focus. And I never know when my best ideas are going to come from letting go, going for a bike ride, and like some brilliant creative idea comes to mind because I wasn't thinking about anything <laughs> versus like sitting at my desk and be like, okay, I'm going to come up with an idea for this customer, what design should be on their bookshelves and having that awareness and that balance and like that reset sometimes, like if I'm not getting somewhere by really giving my full focus, journaling, sketching, brainstorming, whiteboarding, whatever it is, like try all those things, like then take a break, go monotask something else, like go see a concert, go, you know, to the gym and, but do it with your full attention. And then like, sometimes people will notice that like a brilliant idea comes into that space because they, they let go. And I think that's all part of the thinking monotask. If you do, most people, if you do like just sit at your desk and think really hard for too long, you're going to get burnt out. So find the right amount of time where you're good and strong at it and then take a break and like, again, maybe try to train yourself to be able to do it for a little bit longer, we'll naturally reach our maximum because nobody can pay attention forever. You know, there may be certain jobs like in the military and medicine and science and stuff like where people go into those fields and develop that ability that's stronger and longer than other people. But for most of us, like it's enough of a challenge just to pay attention to one thing for more than a few seconds or a few minutes, given all the obstacles that we're up against. Which that's one of the things that's been pretty remarkable to witness. One of the things that I started doing a handful of years ago was just a daily practice of 10 minutes of silence with my eyes closed. Mm -hmm. And it's halfway between prayer and meditation and thinking or some combination of, of all the others. M Mother Teresa 
had a quote where it was a reporter that was talking to her and and he said okay so like when you were sitting in silence like you do every day and you're praying like what are you saying to god and and she said oh i'm i'm not saying anything i'm listening and then he said okay well then what is god saying to you and sh- she said Oh well, he's not saying anything either. He's listening as well, and, <laughs> and and she was like, "I'm sorry if you don't understand that. I can't help you." It's like Mother Teresa was just operating on this other echelon. But it's like sometimes you can feel that way. What's been so interesting is I can't even describe the impact that that practice of ten minutes of silence over the course of the past three years has had on my life. Like the compounding impact of that has just been the number of days that have been changed because of that ten minutes is insane for me to think about. But when we've started to talk to our customers about that, that is the single habit that we talk about that oftentimes receives the most resistance, which is remarkable. Like people will literally say, oh, I can't do that. Like I'll do it in the car while I'm driving or I'll be silent while I'm on a walk, but just sitting there for 10 minutes, maybe four minutes, but not 10 minutes. And, and that's just been remarkable to me. So do you have any insight into like, what is our blocker? Like what, what is it that's keeping us from being able to experience that, that solitude that it takes to just sit for an extended period of time? I think, you know, we've been taught that any time we have available should be applied to something productive, quote unquote. And for some people, that means we should be making money. We should be getting done something done around the house. We should be crossing off our to-do list. We should, you know, create another side hustle. And I think we diminish the benefits of sitting in silence, of prayer, of meditation, of, you know, just doing anything with our full attention. And, and what I decided to do with the book is like, I, I think I recognize in society and culture, like there's, there is that resistance. There are always going to be people who say like, oh, like I'm not going to meditate. I'm not going to, you know, go to yoga. I'm not going to like do this thing because it sounds like too different from me. It sounds whatever, too religious or too Eastern or too mystical or too, you know, et cetera, too liberal, too, et cetera. And I decided to come up with a method that is like completely secular. Anything you can do with your attention and anything you want to do in life, like you can monotask it. I mean, yes, you could look at it as a spiritual religious practice or something. But I think if you just look at it as there are a lot of things in my life I want to get done. There are a lot of relationships I want to strengthen. There are a lot of ways that I want to improve my ability to stay calm and patient and observe like how amazing it is to you know go through this life and have the opportunities we have that you can basically drop into monotasking at any time you want. You don't have to wait till like the end of the week to go to, you know, a class or, you know, church or whatever. You don't have to wait till the end of the day to be like, oh, I'm going to do this tonight when I get home. Like, no, while you're working, you can do it. While you're working out, you can do it. While you're with anybody you're with, you can do it. So just deciding to pay attention is, is really the first step. Yeah, man. It, connects that Jim LA quote, wherever you are, be all there. It's just like presence. And I I think so often, well, this applies to the entrepreneurial realm, I think, in that people become an entrepreneur because they want freedom. And like, then maybe they even build a company and in building a company, they earn the ability to have quote unquote freedom. And, and they don't even really know what freedom is. Like, is it the ability to do whatever you want, whenever you want, right? And, and so then they don't have any structure to their days. And then because they don't have any structure to their days, they feel less free than they've ever felt before because it just feels like everything's distraction and they just feel like they're everywhere. So can, can you speak to, like even for yourself to the role that structure plays in kind of tandem with freedom and, and how those two go together? Yeah, that's a great question. It's a great, you know, observation about being an entrepreneur in that dynamic, in that life cycle. So I do, there's some people that work really well with structure and, you know, in, as we're talking about monotasking, that could be like time blocking. I'm going to make a list or a schedule and I'm going to, you know, decide to work on sales at this time and bookkeeping at this time and et cetera. And then there are other people who, you know, really resist that. And, and I don't think that's a bad thing. And I, I'd put myself in the later category. I get a lot of stuff done. I don't 
if I ever try to set a schedule for like, these are the hours, I'm going to always do this. Like I break it like immediately. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. But that's, I mean, like, was there ever a period where you were like, oh, that's something that's wrong with me that I can't follow a time blocking schedule like that? Or did you just always know like, okay, like that's because I, I feel like a lot of people are wired like you are, but experience maybe shame around the fact that they can't be a time blocker. Does that make sense? It does make sense. I mean, for me, it's like about the long-term measurement, like is stuff still getting done? Mm. And is there a particular reason why every time this one thing comes up in my calendar, like I don't do it? So it was less like continual frustration about like, I can't time block. It's more like why, you know, this one customer's complex order, like I can never seem to get to it or this particular partnership or, or HR is a great example. Like I, I hate HR. <laughs> not not the people, HR. just the processes. No, I love the people. <laughs> I just don't like like all the like rule bound, you know. Totally. I mean, this makes me sound like I'm just, you know, a terrible boss or something, but I'm not. I'm a good boss. But no, just like the the official processes and stuff always frustrate me. And and that's why like I know I should hire and delegate people to take care of HR and I can like be the people person and not the like keeping all the folders the right way. <laughs> okay, but well, like writing a book takes a lot of sustained focus, right? And it's like, yeah. it requires that you apply your attention to one thing over an extended period of time. So how did you structure your time to get this book across the finish line? Because it just seems like if you don't have some structure, then it's like, okay, this book is always a good idea that never gets done. Yeah, I think that that's a good question. So I think the way, one thing that I do really well is I know the structure before I even start a project. Mm. So I'm really good at like envisioning exactly like in the case of the book, like it's going to be this number of chapters. This is going to be the beginning of the book, the end of the book. Each chapter is going to have these sections. So what I laid out, you know, essentially in March of 2020 is the book that came out in December of 2021. And, and then I had, you know, I went in and filled in the parts of the, of the chapters and the, the book minor changes occurred, moved a couple, you know, the order of a few things and changed a few stories. But because I had a vision for the end goal, I was able to then like methodically go through and accomplish like smaller objectives. So yeah. Did you have a deadline by when you wanted the book to be done as well with your garden? Yeah, I did. I had, I had a deadline from the editor at the publisher. So it was published by Little Brown Spark, self-improvement imprint of Little Brown, which is part of Hachette. And so they were expecting the book. And then when I realized that I was getting behind schedule, I actually hired an editor of my own to basically give me deadlines that were like every single day. Like, give me the reading chapter tomorrow. I'm going to give you back the walking chapter and so on. And so that was like monotasking. That was like, I observed in myself, like I'm never going to get it done on time unless I have somebody telling me, like setting the deadlines. And that's like, as a CEO, like you, an entrepreneur, like maybe you don't always have somebody doing that. And as a writer, I realized that there was a a benefit to that. I think so many of the leaders that we work with, would fall into a very similar category to you and that they don't necessarily feel passionate about blocking their time. Some of them do it, but, and don't feel passionate about structuring their time in that way. But I, like I've seen incredible work ethic and results come from both myself and the people we work with in that they can choose a project and for like 90 days, all the way up for a year, say like, this project is the theme of this season, really decide on that, lay out some milestones for it, and then just double down and know what they're running at. And then a lot of times that's what they hire our coaches for is to be the role that your editor played of being like, okay, are you doing what you said you were going to do along those milestones? And so I think that that really helps is maybe you don't have to block out days. Maybe you have to block out the project, but it it sounds like, again, it's all coming back to kind of what the theme of this conversation has been. It feels like in the theme of this book is, is just have an intent for what this season, whether that be the day you're in the task you're in or, or the months or quarters that you're in is focused on. Yeah, exactly. And then, you know, make the adjustments necessary to accomplish your goal and, just because it works out a little bit differently from what you you thought you were going to be doing and exactly how it was going to go 
that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with that. That just means like you're a good creative, good entrepreneur, you know, and you're, you're observing what works for you. And like we said, it might change over time. Like how I got my first book done might be completely different from how I got the second book done. Very cool. Well, we so appreciate your time and I really appreciated this book. I, I think it's going to be something that I refer back to pretty often because I could see myself in seasons where it's like, man, I want to focus on sleep or I want to focus on eating or I want to focus on teaching and coming back to those specific chapters. So I would definitely recommend that our audience check it out and use it as a reference material as well. I know the site that you gave us is monotasking.tips. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. So it's, it's the companion to the book, the 12 monotasks, do one thing at a time to do everything better. Awesome. I love that. Well, thank you so much for your time. Uh, one word of encouragement or challenge to the people that listen to this conversation. What's the, what's the parting word you would give folks? Well, it's too obvious, but I'll say monotask. <laughs> um, do one thing at a time to do everything better. It's really the way to go. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for your time and thanks for this book. We appreciate you. Thanks, Alex. It was a pleasure. Well, I'm so grateful to Thatcher for his investment and for his insights in this conversation. And I hope that your takeaway from this is the same as mine, that so much of what we talked about is related to the topic of presence. And presence means that we're applying intention to our attention and that we are deciding purposefully where we're placing our attention instead of allowing distraction and the world around us and the pace of everything that happens externally to decide decide what we are putting our mind on internally. And so I hope that you're able to take some practices, some tactics, and some tips and actually apply them to your life from this conversation. Y'all, real quick, if you want more content similar to the content we talked about in this episode, we send out a written content every single week in an email called Worth It Wednesday. That's because I believe most email isn't worth it. So every week we want to send you one that is. It's going to be worth your time and worth your energy. So every Wednesday we send out Worth It Wednesday. We and a principle worth learning, a question worth answering, and a recommendation worth taking. You can read it in about three minutes, and we'd love to have you as a part of the Worth It Wednesday community. If you want to get on that email list, you can sign up at pathforgrowth.com or by clicking the link that's in the show notes. Y'all, we're grateful for you. We're rooting for you. We want to see you win. Remember, my strength is not for me. Your strength is not for you. Our strength is for service. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. 